I've chosen tonight to study from one passage. Evangelists have a habit of going all over the place in the Bible. We're going to stay in one chapter, maybe, (laughs) depending on what happens. But I've chosen to read from John chapter 21 tonight. And I want you to think carefully. We read through the Bible so often and not really put things in context, but John chapter 21 takes place immediately after the resurrection of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So try to think, as we go into this chapter, try to think about what kinds of things are really fresh in the disciples' minds as you get into John chapter 21. I mean, it all just happened in the last few hours. The events at the trial of Jesus, the brutal flogging that he got as the result of the testimony of false witnesses, the sight of Jesus writhing in agony on a cross and crying out for a father who didn't seem to be, all happened in the last few hours. The humiliating mockery of a crowd making fun of the Son of God, the limp body of Jesus being taken down from the cross hastily stuffed in a tomb so they could keep the Sabbath on time, the destruction of their hopes. They thought it was the end, the end of the kingdom that was coming, the end of their hopes, and they're living in raw fear, wondering who might be the next to hang on a cross. And then the word from Mary that she'd seen him alive. It's all happened in the last few hours. So I want to encourage you to follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible... You can pull out your iPad and use that if you promise not to tweet and Facebook and Snapchat and whatever else, Instagram. I'm going to trust you not to go on Twitter. And If you don't have any of those things and your neighbor has a Bible, you can check your breath really quickly and then get close and follow. I want you to see it. It helps to hear it and see it, doesn't it? You've got to put Scripture into your heart and mind because there's coming a day where you're going to need it. John chapter 21. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again, because naturally, if you've come back from the dead, you might have to show up more than once before it really sinks in that you're alive. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself, verse 2, Simon Peter Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So that's seven disciples if you do a head count. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out immediately and got into the boat, and that night they caught how much? Nothing. Hang on to that piece of information. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. Father in heaven, the moment has come for me to stand up here. I'm, I'm not what you need, but you've called me and I'd like to be faithful tonight. And so I'm asking that as we go through the the words in this passage, that you would speak so clearly to our hearts that it's unmistakable, that it's obviously you. And I'm asking that as I speak, I would hear you unmistakably too, and I want to say what you would have me say. So easy to start talking and, and, and say things that maybe you didn't give me to say, and I don't want that to happen. I want to be faithful, Lord. I... I want you to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Give me the power to think clearly and to speak clearly and to represent Jesus faithfully, I'm asking. Forgive my sins. Cover me again tonight with the blood of Christ. Blow the dust out of our hearts, I'm asking. Let us see you more clearly, hear you more clearly, and give us the courage to follow. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you go visit the old city of Rome, and I mean the old ruins of the ancient city of Rome, some of you maybe have been there, 
This is bad to admit for an Adventist pastor, but Rome is my favorite city on the face of the planet. I, in the last, oh, 15 years, I've probably lived in that city for a full year, just digging through the ruins and looking at everything, and, 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 and I, because I've fallen in love with history now. I love the city of Rome. And when you go down to the city of Rome, and you get to the old Roman form, you've got the Colosseum here, and then you've kind of got the Arch of Titus, and then you've got the Basilica of Maxentius, which became the Basilica of Constantine, and you go through the ruins, Temple of Jupiter, and uh, Temple of the Vestal Virgins, uh, Julius Caesar's house, the Roman Senate, one of the best preserved buildings of all antiquity. It looks like it was built in 1960. They've kept it so nice. It's so well preserved. And then right beside that, kind of tucked in the corner, is the Mamertine Prison. Now, some of you perhaps have been to the Mamertine Prison. This is the place where history, tradition, legend says that they held both Peter and Paul before they executed them in the city of Rome. We don't know for sure that Paul was ever in the Mamertine Prison, but there's a pretty good chance that's exactly where Peter was held before they led him out over the Tiber River, out to a wasteland on the Vaticanus Mountain, and they, and they crucified him there. It's probably true that that's where he was. Now, when you go to the Mamertine prison, you go down this set of stairs, double stairs that go down. There's a guy sitting on a stool who takes a coin from you because nothing in the city of Rome is ever free. And when you get down the stairs, you walk into this room, and now you're in the Mamertine prison, but you're not yet in the cell that they held Peter. That's one story below you, this dark, musty, dank low-ceilinged cell. So you, you walk into this room and you turn around, face the door that you have just come in, and to your right is this staircase going down into the cell. Some of you perhaps have seen it. And above the staircase, there is this mark in the stone wall, this smudge, this dent. And you know that that smudge or dent is important because they put a steel grate over top to keep you from touching it with your oily tourist fingers and ruining like 2,000 years of patina. I know, because I tried to touch it and they pulled me away. And, and there's a grate right over that dent smudge in the rock, and you know it's important. You wonder, what is that dent or smudge in the rock? And fortunately, there's a plaque right beside it to let you know why it's important. Here's what it says. I, I wrote it down in Italian, and I don't want to embarrass myself, so I'll just read the translation. Here's what, are you interested? you want to know what the plaque says? Good, because that's what I was going to do. Against, listen carefully, against this rock, Peter struck his head, having been pushed by guards, and the miracle remains. What miracle are they talking about? The miracle is the dent in the rock. When the soldiers threw him down the stairwell, his head hit the rock, and it left a big dent in the stone, and the miracle is still there 2,000 years later. It's absolutely remarkable. There's only one little problem with the story. Those stairs weren't there when they imprisoned Peter. They were added hundreds of years later. I know that from studying history. They never pushed him down those stairs. And yet I look at that dent in the wall and I'm thinking, I want this to be true. It can't be true because that stairwell, well, there used to be a hole in the floor. They would lower you on a roof. Through the, the hole is still there. There's a sort of a manhole cover over it. But, but the stairs weren't there. And I know it's not true, but I want it to be true. I want this to be true. Because I'm thinking, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. That matches Peter, a head hard enough to put a dent in a rock. It does, doesn't it? I mean, read the New Testament. Peter is hands down the most stubborn, the most blockheaded, the loudest mouth, the quickest to jump to conclusions out of all the disciples. So it's easy for me to want to believe this. Oh, yeah, if there's somebody with a head hard enough to put a hole in a rock wall, it is, I want it to be true. And I know, I know it's not true, but I want it to be true. Rome's a city of fairy tales. If you've been there, if you haven't, just brace yourself. A lot of what you see just can't be true. It just, it just absolutely can't. They've got everything there. Everything from antiquity is on display in the city of Rome. I mean everything. I, I was in one building, and I can never remember whose finger they have on display. It's either Philip or Thomas, and I should have looked that up this week to remember which finger I saw, but they have the finger of one of the disciples. It's in a glass case. It's remarkable if it's Thomas because he died in India. Somehow his finger made it back to Rome, and they have it in a... In, in a glass case, and that's on display, and you think, well, that, that's interesting. They've got his finger on display, and I've told my wife when I die, I'd like my finger kept up on the, you know, just keep one finger or something up on the mantelpiece because that'd be interesting. What? He says, no, that's not interesting at all. I said, but they did it in Rome. Huh? 
And you go to this other church, and they have this golden mask. It's this helmet kind of a thing. It's kind of a whole head made out of gold, and they'll tell you, we've got the head of Luke the disciple inside of that. We've got Luke's head. I said, that's fascinating. Luke's head's in there, really? Yeah, absolutely, that's Luke's head. I said, what's really remarkable about that is I was in a building on the other end of the city, and they say they have Luke's head in that church. And So there's a problem. Either somebody cut Luke's head in half, or he had two of them, or this isn't true, and they smile. They smile a little bit because they know. There's this one place outside the city, the Abbey of the Three Fountains. And this is actually probably where they cut Paul's head off. The location is accurate. Best as I can tell, that's really where they did it. They, they cut his head off there. But there's this abbey, and you go into this building, this church, and there are three holes in the floor. And you go, why three holes? And you look in the holes, and there's a spring of water coming up under each one of them. And the story goes that when they cut Paul's head off, it bounced three times. And every time it bounced on the ground, an artesian well sprung up out of the ground. And you're looking, you know it can't be true, but it's delightful. You can't help yourself. This is amazing. They got everything here. The, 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 the staircase that Luther crawled up on on his knees in the beginning of the 1500s, that one, Pilate's staircase right across from the Lateran Palace. And, and that, you know, that's the place where it popped into his mind. The just shall live by faith. He got up off his knees, went back to Germany, and launched the Protestant Reformation. But the story goes that that is Pilate's staircase. Jesus walked up and down those stairs on trial with Pilate, and somehow they miraculously teleported from Jerusalem to Rome, and that's where they are today. It's all stories. Rome is a city of stories. It is the world's biggest Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. I mean, the world's, except they're at Ripley's Believe It or Not museum, most of it's true. In Rome, not so much. I mean, there's lots there that is historically accurate. It's still worth visiting. There's lots on display that's actually true. But the more you travel around Rome and look at everything, the less you tend to believe. It's just there's one relic. There is one relic that might actually be real, one. And I laughed at it when I saw it because it's in the Church of the Holy Cross of Jerusalem. That was built by Helena, Constantine's mother. And uh, that part is true. She went to Jerusalem and she brought enough dirt back from Jerusalem, put it on the ground. They built a church on top of the dirt that they consider the church to be built in Jerusalem. All true. That part's all true. And when you go down inside and then you turn left, you go up behind to the back of the church, they've got a little museum and there's this old wooden plaque. And for years they said, oh, that's a medieval forgery. It's the sign from off of Jesus' cross. I said, oh, another medieval forgery. And I got home, and the uh, Journal of the Biblical Archaeological Review said, not so fast. That one might be the one thing in all of Rome that's actually real. But other than that, other than that, still I'm not sure, but other than that, it's all fables. And so I scan in the Mamertine prison, and I look at that dent in the wall, and I know it can't possibly be made by Peter's head, but I'm telling you folks, I want it to be made by Peter's head. I want that to be true, because if anybody, if anybody could do that, it would be Peter. Think about it. He's the guy who rushes in and cuts off the servant's ear, the servant of the high priest. And if you are a thinking, pragmatic man, you don't do that. He just rushes in and cuts off an ear. He's the one who brags in front of all the disciples, I'll never forsake you, Jesus. I mean, the rest of these disciples, look at them. They're going to let you down, but not me. In the end, he chickens out. Peter is the one who could. Peter's the one who watches the rich young ruler walk away, right? Oh, he doesn't have it. What a shame. I left my boats. I left my nets. I am here for the long run. And then in the end, he makes a worse mistake than the rich young ruler made. I mean, think about it. If one, if one of the 12 disciples could put a dent in a stone with his head, it would be, have to be Peter. Have to be. So I see the smudge and I want to believe it. I'm thinking that makes sense. I want it to be true. Do you know why? Because Peter's my guy. (laughs) I identify with this disciple. I mean, if I'm really honest, I could probably put a dent in a rock with my head too. I know it. Do you know why? I have to be careful with this in the state of Michigan. But I am the son of Dutch immigrants. And we win the Nobel Prize for stubborn. Who said amen? Uh. I mean, you go to the internet. You Google two words, stubborn and Dutchman. Just do it. The last time I did it several years ago, 2.3 million results, all from women who were dating a Dutch guy. This guy is so stubborn. Oh, I can't. They say the reason we wear wooden shoes is to keep the woodpeckers off of our heads. We are that stubborn. We are stubborn. I like Peter, my guy. The truth is I like Peter because I'm not entirely Dutch. Mm Mm-mm. 
One leg is Dutch. I'm one quarter. My mom is from Maidenblick, born in the Netherlands. And so I'm, but her mom was German, so this leg is, I'm one quarter German. She, she left Germany in the 20s or 30s. I can't remember exactly when she left and married my grandfather in the Netherlands. So one, you know, one quarter Dutch, one quarter German. But from the waist up, I'm pure-blooded Frisian. Now, some of you, I'm in Michigan. Some of you are going to know what a Frisian, how many know what a Frisian is? Aha, I'm in home country. The rest of you haven't got a clue, do you? You've heard of Frisian cows. Those are ours. And the Frisians are this ancient Germanic tribe. People are, where are you going with this, Sean? Trust me, there's a point. We're an ancient Germanic tribe. We haven't changed in 2,500 years. We're still speaking virtually the same language that we spoke 2,500 years ago. Its, it's closest relative, frankly, is English. It's the closest uh, relative to English on the planet. If you go back 800 years, Frisian and English are virtually identical. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, if you can speak Frisian, you can actually read the original copy of it because we didn't change our language in all that time. It's really, really close. We are an ancient Germanic tribe. At one time, we were actually a big empire. People, well, come on, Frisian Empire? Yes. 1,500 years ago, across the north of Europe, there was a Frisian empire. And maybe because we're so stubborn and blockheaded, our numbers began to dwindle over the years. And now there's just half a million of us left living in the north part of the Netherlands. And the rest of us are in Michigan and in other places like that in the diaspora. But we were a stubborn, stubborn, stubborn bunch. Let me give you a Frisian lesson, actually. Do we have time for one quick Frisian lesson? I'm going to teach you some Frisian because, because it's the language of heaven. You're going to have to get used to it. There's a famous sentence in the Frisian language that if you can say this sentence, you can speak Frisian. And if you listen, it's so close to English, it's amazing. Now, my Frisian is bad. My dad would be ashamed of it. But here it is in English. Butter, bread, and green cheese. You can tell we're not really big on the health thing. Butter, bread, and green cheese is good English and good Frise. Right. Here it is in Frisian. Butter, bread, and green cheese is good English and good Frise. See, it sounds almost identical. Now, we are stubborn. Where were all my Frisians, right? We are, amen, we are stubborn. How stubborn? You might have read in the gospel according to Luke that Augustus Caesar decreed that all the world should be taxed. You re that comes out every December. If you don't remember it, wait a few months and somebody will read it again. The whole world is taxed. Now he had a stepson, Tiberius Caesar, who was utterly despised. So despised, Daniel predicted that he wouldn't even get a state funeral in Daniel chapter 11. And it's true, they just left his body out in the sun. They hated him so much. Why? Because he looked at what Augustus Caesar did, among the other things that he did. He says, you know, if he collected taxes from the whole empire, that sounds like a good idea. I'd like that money too. And he sent out his tax collectors. Now, being a tax collector in New Testament times was a bad, raw deal. I actually feel sorry for the tax collectors. It was sort of a social strata that you were born into, and you could not get out of it. You had to go collect taxes, and if you didn't, the Caesar took the money from you. You had no choice. So your heart has to go out to the tax collectors that you come across in the New Testament. They didn't have a choice, and they're despised. They work for the Romans. And Tiberius Caesar sends them out, and they go up through Italy and through France, Spain and up into France and through what is now Belgium and the Netherlands, and they come to the kingdom of the Frisians, and they introduce themselves. We're here to collect taxes on behalf of Caesar. And the Frisians looked at them and hung them all. I read that story to my kids. That's our bedtime reading at home. And, <laughs> and Dad, they said it must be genetic because we hear you muttering every tax time. <laughs> Got to be genetic. I said, no, no, in that case, everybody's a Frisian, honey. We all <laughs> mutter when we fill in our taxes. We were stubborn. How stubborn? Where are you going with this, Sean? Trust me. The first Roman missionary to go to the Frisians was a guy by the name of Boniface. He got there and figured out that we were a bunch of pagans worshiping a holy tree, and he didn't like that, so he cut down our tree. And we thought, well, what are we going to do about that? We cut off his head. <laughs> Seemed fair. And then the Frisians noticed he was traveling with a trunk, and they opened it up. They thought, oh, I'll be full of money. It didn't have any money, and it had books, and we were illiterate. We couldn't read. So we got mad, and we stabbed all the books until there was just shreds of paper. And then they found a bottle of wine. And then they drank that, and they started to argue with each other about who got the trunk. And they couldn't back out of an argument because we're so stubborn, and they stabbed each other to death. Someone found the scene of the crime, decapitated missionary, and a bunch of dead Frisians who couldn't leave the scene of the crime. Stubborn. Those are my people. Those are my people. If you've studied Bible prophecy, you might remember that the first barbarian king to give allegiance to the little horn power was Clovis, king of the Franks, in 508 A.D. Right? Remember that? Beginning of the 1290 days. You, you should remember it. It's important. The conversions in Europe start with Clovis, 
winning everybody over to the little horn power. About 200 years later, they go up to among the Frisians, and they meet our king, Redbad, Rotbad. That's a great name for a king, Redbad the king. And they're con- Redbad the king. He's a bad king, Redbad the king. And he almost converts. They're talking him into it, and his dad says, this is going to be great for our whole kingdom. If we build an alliance with the bishop of Rome, this is going to be really, really good for us. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to get baptized. And there's an old tapestry. You can still see it to this day. He's got one leg in the baptistry, proving, by the way, that in the 700s it was still by immersion. He's got one leg going into the baptistry. He's got one leg out. Why did they paint him that way? It's because he stopped. And he turns to the priest and he says, listen, if I get baptized, do I go to heaven? Yeah, absolutely. we got the keys of Peter. You're going straight to heaven. Good. He said, what about all my pagan ancestors? Oh, no, no, they're not going to heaven. Where are they going to go? Oh, they're going to flip and fry throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity in a place called hell, and and that's what happens to them. Well, can't they come in if I get baptized? No, no, it doesn't work that way. So he pulls his leg back out. said, that settles that. He said, I'd rather go live there with them than live in heaven with the French. (laughs) I read that story to my kids one night. They said, Dad, that's got to be genetic too because French was your worst subject in school, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Now I've confessed I was no good at poetry, no good at English, and no good at history, and no good at French. My people were stubborn. Peter is one of us. If there had been a disciple to the Frisians... Andrew went to Britain, Thomas went to India, Paul went to Spain, went to Asia Minor. If there had been a disciple sent to the Frisians, it would have to be Peter. No one else would stand a chance. He's just like me. Or maybe if we're all going to be honest tonight, maybe there's a reason he wasn't sent to any particular nation. Maybe he's a lot like you. Let's read it again. John 21. After these things... Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Think about that for a minute. That is a very strange thing to say. I'm going fishing. Why would you go fishing on a day like this? The biggest events in the history of the universe have just taken place in the last few days. It doesn't make sense. Jesus has just defeated the devil at the cross of Calvary. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3 has just come and he crushed the head of the serpent. The first prophecy in the Bible has just been fulfilled in the last few days. The biggest problem we have as a human race are sin and rebellion, death and the grave. They've all been conquered by God who just came in human flesh. The curse that fell on us when Adam rebelled against the Creator can be lifted now. We have a future to look forward to. The salvation of the human race has just been purchased by the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. This moment in the last few days is everything the prophets had been anticipating. This is the moment all the angels of heaven had been waiting for. This is what Daniel saw when he's writing out the vision of the 70 weeks. Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. This is the moment David saw as he penned the 22nd Psalm and heard Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Isaiah saw as he writes, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This, in John chapter 21, as you're reading this chapter, this moment is the culmination of all those prophecies, all the hopes of Israel. It's the deciding battle, the grand climax in the drama of the ages. This is the victory of Jesus over the forces of darkness. This is the public vindication of the character of God, and it's the public undoing of the devil himself. And Peter wants to go fishing. That doesn't make sense. It's wildly inappropriate to the occasion. It, it is. It's like watching football on your wedding day. Not, not that anybody in this room's ever done that. <laughs> what sense does this make? Think about it. It makes sense. Put yourself on that beach with them. Put yourself on the beach in your, in your mind's eye. I want you to watch. Seven disciples walking on the Sea of Tiberias, huddled in a tight group, and they're reviewing what has just happened in their minds. 
Except, as you're looking at this in your mind's eye, I don't want you to see all seven together. I want you to see six ahead of the rest and Peter lagging about 30 feet behind. Because he knows what he did in the last few days. He can't hold his head up. I mean, they all panicked and fled. They all forsook Jesus and ran, but he betrayed Jesus. He swore up and down, I don't know him. And that night when he made eye contact with Jesus across the courtyard, he could see it. Jesus knew what he had just done. He predicted it. And they all failed Jesus, but not like him. There are two that are worse than the rest. Judas sold Jesus for the price of a slave. That, that was bad. But Peter publicly denied knowing him. He choked. Standing warming his hands at the, at, at, at the fire. Hey, you, you're, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. Who, what? No, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know what you're, I'm just here in town. I, who? I'm pretty sure you were with him. Listen, guys, he's got the accent of a Galilean. This is one. I'm telling you, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not. No, no, that's the guy who cut your cousin's ear off in the garden. That's him. I don't know this Jesus. He can't get that out of his brain. Judas hadn't even done that. It just keeps playing over and over and over. You ever had that? He has to think about everything he said over the years, all the dumb stuff he did. Jesus, I'd lay down my life for your sake. You can count on me. Jesus, this is so exciting. Moses and Elijah are here. Let's build three tabernacles, three of them. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll put you right in the center one, Jesus, except that when they hang Jesus between two thieves instead, he does nothing. You can't wash my feet, Jesus. That's not the job of a master. That's what a servant does. Don't wash my feet. But he does nothing as they pound a spike through Jesus' feet. Nothing. And he can't stop thinking about it. And now he knows there is no way he's part of God's kingdom. There's no way. Maybe you can imagine what he feels like. I can. I can think back. I mean, start looking back. I can, I, I can think of it. All the way back to childhood, I can think. I've done all that stuff. Boasted and been called on it? Oh, yeah. Third grade. Swimming lessons, kids, let's sign up. Everybody has to sign up for beginner, intermediate, or expert. There's not a chance in front of my buddies I was signing up for anything other than expert, even though I grew up at the foot of a glacier and you couldn't swim in the water. Jumped in the pool, thrashed around like I was drowning, and the lifeguard called me out and made me walk in front of all my buddies to the shallow end of the pool with the little kids. <laughs> it's childish, but I, I, know what it, I, I, know what it's like. I know what it's like to pretend I don't know Jesus, too. Let me tell you about it. You don't mind if I'm honest, do you? Seventh grade, I get pulled out of the school I grew up in, Christian school. My family moves, and we move to a new town, and I'm sweating bullets. Boy, I grew up in a Christian house, and I'm probably going to be the only Christian kid in the class, and I know what's expected of you because I'd read all the books from Moody Press, and I, 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 Decision Magazine came to our house. I'm going to have to be a witness when I get there, and I wasn't. I wasn't a witness to those kids at all. They were a witness to me, and by the 10th grade, I didn't have one foot in the world. I had them both in. There's no describing. People say, it's so harsh, you're in 10th grade. Why do you say you were lost? Because it's the truth. I was. I was lost. Raised on reading the Bible, first book I ever read. Went to a Christian school, attended church twice every weekend, and now I had not one foot in the world, but both in, and I might have been a kid. I get that. But I know what it's like to pretend you don't know Him. I know what it's like to find out that you can't hold your head up around your friends. You know what that one feels like? Tenth grade, I get selected to go on a fourth foreign exchange trip. Some miracle because I had really bad grades in French. <laughs> I went on a French exchange trip. And in Canada, you don't have to leave the country to go on a French exchange trip. We have our own, we have our own kingdom of the Franks. <laughs> Quebec. And at one point, we took this train trip overnight. And the teachers, in their infinite wisdom, decided they would get a sleeper car and sleep that night and leave us out and the general public on the train. And 15 years old, and I guess they figured we'd sleep in the chairs. 
What we did was terrorize the passengers on that train all night long to the point where today when I check into a hotel somewhere and the high school sports team checks into the room next to me, I know I've got it coming. <laughs> Terrorize that train and, and that night we, we committed some offenses that the school rule book said should end in suspension and expulsion. Now some of you were shocked. Boy, the guy at VOP was a bad kid. Yeah, I, I kind of was. Not as bad as some of you are imagining, though. We didn't commit any crimes. I mean, none that could be proven. <laughs> and we would have gotten away with it, too, except some kid snitched. There's two places in this world you don't want to be a snitch. Federal penitentiary and middle school. Somebody told. The teachers rounded us up, put us in a classroom, sat us in chairs. Opened the Inquisition, bare bulbs, steel chairs. Were you involved? And I watched as all these kids began to cry and buckle. And I guess what they didn't count on is a Frisian kid. I was one of those kids that would not give you the satisfaction of crying when you spanked them. I'm not going to, no way, I'm not going to cave in. That's very Frisian. But then I did something that's very un-Frisian. Let me tell you, the, the Dutch and Frisian, they don't lie. My folks and my, my clan, they would rather lose their career than tell a lie. But I did that day. Let everybody down. I told a lie. Sean, do you know anything about what happened on that train that night? Oh, no, sir. I guess I was so tired doing my geometry homework in my chair that I just fell over on the textbook and fell asleep. And, and I haven't got it. And there's this audible gasp goes up around the classroom because I was one of the most guilty of them all. And, 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 and they couldn't prove it. Teachers eyeballing me couldn't prove it. I walked out. And for 30 seconds, that felt awesome until my friends caught up with me. How could you do that? We're all suspended. My parents are taking my driver's license away from me. I, you lied to save yourself. Yeah, I know what that feels like. And I know those are childish stories. That was my childhood. Maybe minor offenses. But let me be really honest with you tonight. There have been other times in my adult life when I have been confronted with the darkness in my own heart. I've been forced to see myself the way heaven must see me. I have looked at myself face to face. I've come face to face with the fact that I am a sinner and I have a rebellious heart and I have been ashamed of who I am and I've been ashamed of what I've done. Haven't you? Martin Luther once wrote, I'm more afraid of my own heart than the Pope and all his cardinals because I have within me the great Pope self. He's absolutely right. Your worst enemy in this world, not liberals, it's not conservatives, it's not atheists. Your biggest problem in this universe is you. It is. You know it's true. There comes this point in everybody's life too where suddenly your carefully crafted disguise is ripped away and the whole world can actually see you like you actually are. It happens to all of us. If it hasn't happened to you yet, trust me, it's going to happen because you can only pretend for so long before it fails. You can only fake it. You can only play charades for so long until you're that woman caught in adultery, thrown on the ground in front of Jesus. And she was guilty. She had done it. Oh, yeah, it was set up, but she was guilty of what they said she had done. And even though the devil set you up, even though you are a pawn in the devil's game, even though the Pharisees might have walked you into it, you are still guilty of your sins, and you know it. There's no excuse. And if it hasn't happened yet, if the real you has never burst out, it's going to happen because God loves you too much to keep letting you live like a hypocrite. It'll destroy you in the end. It's going to happen. Count on it. It's going to come out funny with a kid. But when you stand in front of the great white throne with the filthy rags of your broken relationship with God, when you stand there and all your excuses are gone, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you have to stand in front of the one person in this universe you can't fool? What will you bring to that meeting? The broken promises you've made? The relationships you've damaged? The broken hearts of people you've hurt? The laws of God that you've broken? The times that you pretended and lived like you don't even know Him? What are you going to bring to that meeting? It's not hard to figure out why Peter wants to go fishing, folks. He's giving up. He's throwing in the towel. Because there's no hope now, he's going back to his boat and to his nets because he's defeated. He knows that this is, I don't have what it takes. He's like so many people that are in your church. He's like so many of you. 
you come to Jesus and then you flounder and you sin, and you discover that you don't have what it takes on your own. And some people, when that moment comes, instead of realizing that we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, we look around and we say, oh my goodness, I'm at odds with God's people, I must be at odds with God, and they disappear. They go back to the life that they had. There's a reason you find them in the old places where they used to go. They're going back to one day before they came to Jesus, because where else are they going to go? They've given up. It's not hard to figure out why Peter wants to go fishing. Where else is he going to go? What else is he going to do? He goes back to the life he had the day before he met Jesus. That's what he's doing. I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm going fishing. John chapter 21 is Peter walking away from the kingdom of God. Jesus had said, Satan wants to sift you. Now he's been sifted, so he leaves. And he goes and he, he goes to the boat and he's pushing it away, and he's about to get into his boat. He's unfolding the nets, and he hears the most remarkable thing in the universe. Another voice, another disciple. Peter, you're you're going fishing? That's a great idea. Because they all feel it. They all failed. Not one of you is alone in your sin. Not one. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, Paul writes. We all feel separation from God. We all know our sins condemn us. We all know we fall short of the glory of God. But what happens is the devil pushes us all apart and isolates all of us so that we feel lonely. We hide in the corner and we think, if they only knew what I was actually like when nobody was looking, if they only knew what my family life was like, if they only knew what I did at work this week, if they only knew what I did on the internet, if they only knew how much I hated my neighbor, if they only knew how I behave when I'm not around church people, if they only knew, the devil takes all of us, he pushes us all apart, he isolates us, makes us think we're the only ones, he steals your hope. But it's at that moment when you know you're lost, that Jesus shows up. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught how much? Nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. That's where he always is. Even in your darkest, loneliest moment, he's still there. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. That makes me wonder, how often have I just failed to see Him because I'm not paying attention? How often have I just not recognized that it's Him? Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? Well, of course they had nothing. Jesus knew that. He also knows you don't have anything to bring. You've got nothing. He knows your net is empty. He knows what it actually is. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. Of course they had nothing. They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now, I want you to pay attention to what Jesus just did. Peter's going back to the day before he met Jesus, and so Jesus is going back to that very same moment. He's going back to the moment that he first met Peter, and he performs the very same miracle that he performed at the very moment that he met Peter. It's the very same story. Luke chapter 5, verse 4, when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, there's Peter, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered him and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now pay attention. Here it comes. We're three and a half years earlier. It's exactly the same story. It's exactly the same story. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so they, they began to sink. And here comes the big part. Don't miss this. This is in Luke 5, verse 8. Listen carefully. This is the moment that Jesus now wants Peter to remember. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He had nothing three and a half years ago, and Jesus wanted him. He has less now. And Jesus still wants him. He performs 
exactly the same miracle. Jesus wants Peter to remember what the terms of their relationship were in the beginning. He had nothing then, he's got nothing now. Salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Folks, you have always had an empty net. You have always had an empty net. Jesus rewinds the tape for Peter. He stands on the shore, he calls out, Hey! Did you catch anything? Who's that guy on shore? No, we caught nothing. Why don't, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat and see how that goes? What in the world does a land lover know about fishing? Why is that guy over there? It's John that clues in first. Hey, Peter, I think that's Jesus. How much invitation does bullheaded Peter need? This is one moment where being Peter is just the right thing. He doesn't wait for them to turn around the boat. He steps out of the boat and starts for shore. <laughs> and he gets to the beach, and he finds himself shivering and wet and looking into the same eyes he looked at across the courtyard. Hearts pounding. What's he going to say? He can't fix it. You can't fix it. So Jesus speaks first. Peter, I know you're broken. I know you think I have no more use for you. But you do remember the first time we met, don't you? Lord, how could I forget? I felt so worthless that day and I'm I'm even more worthless now. I don't have what it takes. Peter, don't you get it? That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's the whole point. You don't have what it takes. You can't prove yourself to me. You don't earn a spot in my kingdom. You're going to have to take this as a gift. That is the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? To take it as a gift. We want to earn it. You'll notice Peter does have to confess. <laughs> Peter! Yes, Lord. Do you love me more than these other guys? That had to hurt because he used to say that. <laughs> I don't know about these other guys, Lord, but of course I love you. He's not comparing himself to anybody now because when we all stand at the feet of Jesus, what's the point of comparing? There is no one good but God. Jesus asked him three times, Do you love me? Lord, I don't know about these others. I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Then Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. Me? Yeah, you. I want you to hear me carefully tonight. That's the one thing he gave us to do. Go build a fire on the beach. Call the rest of them home because they don't get it yet. Why does he give us that job? Why is he giving Peter that job? Because if you're focused on leading other people to Jesus, you finally get out of the way. I mean, if, if your idea of getting right with God is gritting your teeth and working on you more, your focus is still you, and that was the original problem, pride. But if you're focused on the one thing God gave this church to do, you get out of the way, and now the Holy Spirit can actually work on you. Because you got out of the way. So it's brilliant. God has us work for other people. Feed my sheep. I want you to build a fire for somebody else now because, Peter, the world is full of people exactly like you that think that God doesn't love them and will never take them back. Go build a fire on the beach. Feed those people. Feed them. I want you to bring them home. Helen White once wrote that working for someone else's salvation is the only way to grow in grace. Marshawn, we get what you're saying. I mean, you've been drilling it into us for three meetings. And... All right, but you don't understand. I'm, I'm not HMS Richards. No, I know. I'm not George Vanneman. No, I know. I'm not James White. No, no, I know. I'm not Martin Luther. I know. He's been dead for 500 years. I know. See, when God needed those people, He called those people. Don't try to be somebody else. 
He calls you with what you have, the gifts you have and the gifts you don't have, just the way you are because He needs you now. That's who He needs. It's not a big secret that in recent years I had an incredible struggle. Three weeks into a campaign downtown Rome, people have been telling me, you, you, can't, you can't preach this message in Western Europe, won't work. And I thought, well, what town could we go to and preach this where nobody could say, my town's tougher? And my heart sank when I knew the answer. Rome. Third week of those meetings, I doubled over in agony and it never got better. As the months went by, eventually occurred to me, I'm going to have to step down. I'm losing motor control some days. Gene would bring me to the hospital and I couldn't speak. I could add a stroke. And I'll be honest with you. I'm a human being. At the very bottom I remember the moment I got mad at God. I'm human. Lord, I gave you my whole life. Like, like, like he owes me something. <laughs> I gave you my whole life and this is how I die like this. I get Peter. I might have done it quietly in the emergency room. But we've all done it. And I started to get better. <laughs> and I wondered, well, I must be finished. <laughs> Am I done? Let me tell you what I've discovered. I don't know what you're going through. Some of you have gone through some awful stuff. Some of you are going through some awful stuff. But I promise you right now, he's still on the beach. The fire is warm and he's still calling. I asked, Lord, can you still use me? I'm not what I was. You know, I'm not 20 anymore. <laughs> I get tired and cranky. Lord, can you use me? Let me tell you, he was on the shore. A few years ago, I'm in an airport. I seem to live in them. And I had a new book. I, I mean, I love a new book. I was so excited. When I travel, that's when I get to read. And I'm sitting at the gate with my brand new book, and I open it up. Crack the spine. You know the first crack you put in the spine. And this is going to be great. And the lady sits next to me and starts talking, blah, 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 in my ear. I'm thinking, I want to read my book. This isn't fair. Blah, 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 blah. And I better listen. I can't read anyway. And she starts telling me a story. She said, my husband's died. And kids are trying to tell me to sell the house. And I don't know what to do. I thought, oh, boy, I'm an idiot. So we talked for a little bit. They called her flight and she left. Oh, boy, I'm going to read my book. Cracked it open again. This guy sits on the other side of me. I'm a doctor and my practice is falling apart. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I need to do something meaningful with my life. And he talks for a while. Okay, Lord, okay. See, I'm telling you, if I can do this, anybody can do this. And he gets up and he goes to catch his flight. Oh, now it's time. A third lady. She sits down. I'm getting divorced. And I finally, okay, I, I soften up a little bit. All right, Lord, I, I get it. I'm supposed to be a light here. And then they call my flight. I get up to the ticket spitter, you know, where they scan your thing, and spits out a little ticket. My seat's been changed. Oh, no. Oh, maybe it's an upgrade. Oh, that's great. Nope, nope. Well, they've changed equipment. You know how that happens. Now I'm not in 20C anymore. I'm in 19C. All right, that's fine. Still an aisle seat. I like that. Stick my leg in the aisle. And I get on the plane, and the seat next to me is empty. Oh, praise the Lord, I'm going to read my book. I mean, they're going to, we're about to close the door, and the seat's still empty. It's the only empty seat on And you know that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, thank you, Lord, I've got an empty seat. And just as they're closing the door, this kid gets on the plane. And I look around in a panic. Oh, there's got to be another empty seat somewhere. Nope, 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 right next to me. Hey, you traveling to home or away from home, I asked. He said, oh, no, I'm just coming home. I went on a big trip. First time in my life I've gone on a big trip. Oh, so we start talking a little bit. And, you know, and the plane is taxiing. And I said, so what do you do? He says, well, I renovate buildings. I said, really? You, you like it? He says, I love it. It's such a great feeling. When you're done, you can walk away from the building, and it's all looking brand new, and I fixed it up, and it's great. I said, is that what you went to school for? He said, no, I went to school for something else. I said, well, that's interesting. I went to school for something other than what I do, too. He said, really? What did you go to school for? I said, well, I went to school for political science and economics and philosophy. 
said, that's quite a degree. I said, it's completely useless. You know, unless you keep going, go to law school or something, and it's completely useless. I've got a big career, and would you like fries with that? That's what I got. And he laughed. He said, oh, that, that, that's true. And he says, but I love politics. You studied politics? He says, yeah. And he starts listening. He says, I love that subject. He starts listening all these political philosophers that he's been reading. And it's, I'm listening. I'm thinking, this is amazing. Those are exactly the political philosophers I was reading at his age. It's like a time machine. This guy is me 25 years ago. That is amazing. I said, you know so much about this. That's amazing. Is that what you went to school for? Did you go to school for political science? He said, oh, no, I did not. I said, what did you go to school for? He says, I went to school for religion. I said, really? He says, yeah, but I hate religion now. I quit. I gave up on religion. I'm done with it. I hate religion. I said, oh, boy. And I'm thinking, I can't be sitting by this guy by accident. I got assigned to the seat at the last minute. I guess I'm not going to be reading a book at all. There's something going on here. So we talk a little bit. I let him sort of expound on religion for a few minutes. And finally, I changed the subject. I said, so what was your family's background? He said, well, my grandparents were Dutch immigrants. <laughs> I said, no kidding, my parents are Dutch immigrants. I'm like right off the boat, Dutch. I said, I said, do you speak Dutch? He said, no, I don't speak. My parents speak a little, I don't really speak any. I said, that is remarkable. I said, I just, you know, I understand a little bit. I can speak a little. My kids don't speak any. I think I'm your parents' generation, and this is, this is just amazing. He said, well, I need to be really honest with you. I'm not really Dutch. He said, no. He said, no, I'm Frisian. I said, Frisian, have you heard of King Redbad? You're going to like this guy. He got halfway into the baptistry and he walked away. He said, well, that does sound interesting. I said, let me tell you about this story. Did you know we hung the Roman tax collectors? He's eating it up. That's amazing. I got to tell him the stories. And I'm thinking, this is like my own personal time machine. This guy is exactly me 25 years ago. He's me one day before I came to Jesus. I said, you know, we have so much in common. I bet I know your family's religious background. I, I got it nailed. He says, take a guess. I said, you're going to be like Christian Reformed or Dutch Reformed or something like that. You got to be. He said, that's a really good guess. He said, but you're wrong. You're going to think this is really strange for a Dutch family, and I'm sure you've never, ever heard of it, but we were Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> I said, oh. <laughs> we talked about that for a minute. Kept my mouth shut. And he finally said, so what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm a minister. He said, I feel bad about all that stuff I said about religion. I said, oh, no, no, but good bit of what you said was actually true. I worry about those same things. He said, you do. We talked a little bit more. And he said, so what church? He said, you're going to think this is really, really strange for a Dutch family. <laughs> You've probably never heard of them. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I wish I'd had a camera with me right at that minute. I... No, he said. I said, yes. And the weird thing is, I wasn't supposed to sit here. And he says, neither was I. I'm standby. I said, I got assigned to the seat at the last minute, and I'm not going to preach at you because that's just not who I am except for one little tiny bitty sermon. Just one, you know, I have to do that. My job requires I got to preach one sermon at you. He said, okay, go ahead. I said, I sat here at the last minute, and so did you. You have to come back to church, and you know it. Two Frisian kids, two Peters, sitting side by side on an airplane, and we're both being asked to come back. Eventually, they took Peter out of the Mamertine. They led him out of town across the river to be crucified. We only know on hearsay and testimony of, evidence, of witnesses what happened. When they brought him there and he saw the cross, he began to cry. No, not that. Not because he was scared. He said, that's how Jesus died. That's too good for me. They said, we can fix that. 
and they crucified him upside down. He drew his last breath and closed his eyes. But he wakes up. And he gets to see Jesus again. Peter, it's you. (laughs) Did you catch anything? Oh Lord, we caught fish. Oh my goodness, 3,000 in one day. I told you I would make you a fisher of men, Peter. I told you, Jesus, it was amazing. We've got to catch up. And Jesus says, well, we can catch up, but there's something you need to see. I'm so excited, Peter. You've got to see this. What is it, Lord? Just, Just follow me. And they walk out of the New Jerusalem, and they turn around. Peter, look. Oh, Lord, that is a beautiful city. I know, but look! Oh, Lord, it's gorgeous. No, but Peter, Peter, look! What? Look down below. And he looks at the foundation, and there's one with his name written on it. Peter. Because I promise you, God's building that kingdom out of people just like you. And while we wait, there's only one thing he told us to do, just just the one thing. It's not complicated. Go feed my sheep. When Natalie was little, it seems like yesterday, she's what, two, three? I'm tucking her into bed. And I kiss her on the forehead, good night, daddy loves you. And I'm walking out of the room, I'm about to turn the light off. And I hear her voice cry out in the dark, daddy! Yeah. Daddy, can we have a discussion? Okay, honey, but as long as it's a short discussion. I know a stall tactic when I see it. So I sit on the edge. What would you like to discuss? Daddy, yeah. When, When we get to heaven, yeah. Do you think there are orange trees in heaven? We just moved to California. She'd just seen her first orange tree. I said, I don't know for sure, but there is fruit there. And if you love oranges, maybe Jesus will have an orange tree for you. Oh, good, she said. Daddy, yeah. We get to heaven, yeah. They're going to have kitty cats there? I'm thinking quietly, I hope not. (laughs) I don't know, honey. They have animals, though, and if you love kitty cats, there might be one there for you. Oh, good. Daddy, yeah. Daddy, when we get to heaven, do you, do you think Jesus would have any time for me? I know that one. We're going to be there a long, long time, honey. I bet He might even have a whole day for you. Oh, good. I'm going to ask Him to come over and we'll eat oranges and sit under that tree. And Daddy, Daddy, are you going to be there? Yeah, count on that one. I wouldn't know. You can come over and eat oranges too, Dad kissed her on the forehead again and I'm about to leave and turn out the lights and one last question daddy I promise it's the last one why is he taking so long that question is up to us to answer it's up to us I know there's lots to keep you busy folks I know there's lots to distract the attention I know there's all kinds of debates that go on and all kinds of discussions but the only thing he told us to do Feed my sheep. Go look. Go read your Bible again. Please do. There's no other assignment. Feed my sheep. I have to get on a plane and I have to go now, but I don't want to do it without asking you. I know it's scary. I still don't know what I'm doing. If you know what you're doing, you haven't thought about this very carefully. I know you don't know what to say. I don't either. All I'm asking, are you willing? Are you? Don't don't do this if you don't mean it. Please don't. All He wants is your courage. He doesn't need our good looks or our intelligence. or He just needs your courage. That's it. You can choose that. If you're going to choose it, I want to pray with you. He gave His life for you. The cross was for you. I know you feel like you have nothing to offer. That's the whole point. 
He's giving you everything. There's a story Jesus told about a father who had a son who left. When he came back, he said, could I just be a servant? And the father said, don't you understand? Everything I have is yours. You can choose to believe that tonight. You can just choose it. It's not about how you feel. It's about how good Jesus is. And tonight you need to accept it. He's coming for you. I'm asking tonight, do you believe that Jesus loves you? That He forgives your sin? Raise your hand if you choose to believe that. Father, look at this. I know you're smiling because your love is so deep for us. You've lived for the moment that you come to get us. I know the reason you shout when you come is excitement. Lord, we're standing here because we want to see the work finished. We want to go home. We want to look into your eyes and see you face to face. We want to thank you in person. And there are people who are not here. They're out in the boat. And they have no idea how much you love them. We don't know what to say, but we, we promise we're going to build a fire on the beach. We're going to call them ashore. And we'll tell them what you've done. So give us courage. That's all we're asking for tonight, just the courage. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.